I think that's a real important point to bring up. To understand why the venture industry is not a profession yet. The NBCA is a lobbying organization. It's not a professional standards organization. It has not created a body of knowledge of best practices or had conversations like this where they're truly trying to help VCs invest other people's money better. And they've been around since 73. Anybody can become one. You just got to be able to raise a couple bucks and pay a lawyer to form the legal document. And you're now a VC. Welcome, everyone. I'm JJ. And I'm Austin, and we're the hosts of the Going VC podcast. Going VC is a professional development program that aims to help you take your next or first step into venture capital. And to that end, we're really excited to bring to you today this episode of the Going VC podcast. Our goal of this podcast, as always, is twofold to pull back the curtain on a career in VC, as well as give you a peek inside some of the lesser seen parts of the industry through conversations with LPs, GPs, academics, and more. If you've got any questions for us, let us know at podcast at goingbc.com. New episodes will premiere every second Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern, and in each, we'll talk about their career path, tactical feedback for thriving in VC, before diving into some Q&A. So whether you're new, on your third fund, or just curious, it's our hope there'll be something interesting for you in each episode. With that out of the way, let's get started. Our guest today is Joe Millam. Joe's the founder of AngelSpan, a platform providing best-in-class investor updates for early-stage companies, and brings with him a diverse background in institutional asset management and private investing, which has afforded him a unique perspective on the strengths and weaknesses of how venture capital operates today. In today's episode, we learned about Joe's background as an investment manager for family offices, how he developed his interest in model-based risk management, and how those experiences led him to found AngelSpan. In this episode, JJ, I think is particularly interesting for those already operating funds because we dive deeply into a lot of the challenges within VC, particularly when it comes to risk management, doing all the things VCs aren't always adept at, such as creating transparency, improving communication, providing standardized reporting to LPs, among many other things that we discuss. Definitely. Joe brings a really unique perspective on some of the challenges the industry has, and this is definitely an episode you don't want to miss. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Let's get started. You bring a lot of practitioner experience to what you guys are doing at AngelSpans. So why don't we start with your background and then give us the high level problem venture and then what AngelSpan you guys are doing about it. Yeah. All the way back to college was a sort of a stock market junkie, had a brokerage account and income statements and balance sheets just seemed to come natural. Jumped off at EF Hutton right out of college and found the sell side is more about selling than buying and analyzing. And I had the good fortune to join a, a buy-side firm in 1990. That's really where things changed dramatically. The firm I joined had been purchased by the bank in Liechtenstein. They came to the U.S. and opened an office in New York and then started buying firms after the 87 crash. They sought out who was the most boutique private client firm in the Bay Area. And this one firm kept coming up and they bought it in 88. And I had the good fortune of joining that firm in 1990. We happen to be located at 3000 Sand Hill Road there in Mendel Park. And my boss and predecessor uh, was part owner of the complex. He grew up right over the hill, went off to Ivy League undergrad, Stanford MBA, entered the investment world in the mid-60s and started his own firm in 1970. And that's all relevant because it really was joining his firm, given his personal brand, where we were and when I joined in 1990. We were old school, did our own research, individual securities, very much like a trust department at a bank, but a private firm. And the first portfolio I was handed to manage was Larry Sincini's personal money, Wilson, Sincini, Goodrich, and Rosati. And then we had a couple of Sequoia Capital partners 
assets to manage because they were our neighbors. Danny was the guy that if you had money, you went to him. It was really from being his right-hand guy that I got early exposure and got brought into the inside of that Silicon Valley old guard insiders. Reed Dennis was one of the old guard VCs, and Reed and Denny went to the same prep school in Southern California and were board of trustees of Thatcher School. Denny hung with those guys. It was because of who he was, I got exposure to that audience. Denny died of cancer, sadly, in 92, and I took over the business and bought it back from the bank in Liechtenstein in 93. And then all hell broke loose. It's called the commercialization of the internet. And from a front row seat with clients, as I just spoke to, the Band of Angels, the first angel group that sprung up after the internet uh, became commercialized, that was founded in my office by Hans Severance, who was my subtenant. It was this series of what I call Forrest Gump-like experiences that you couldn't have made up, but it gave me a direct exposure to the modern era of angel and, and venture funding but from the perspective of a Wall Street type securities analyst and portfolio manager. And it's with that experience that really informs what we're doing now. Yeah, that's interesting. You almost to venture by way of the right time, right place, and you knew some right folks. But your career, you stayed managing money in the sense that you were more tied to Wall Street for quite a bit while after that, though. Correct. Yeah. When Denny died, I took over the company. He and I were actually already talking about going off on our own when his five-year employment contract was to expire July of 93. And he just sadly died Christmas day of 92. And I just grabbed the same people that he and I were talking about keeping from the firm, bought the business back from the bank and launched off into what he and I discussed just without him. What we launched off into was to build our research methodology and process around a very singular research philosophy and third-party research tool that's now owned by Credit Suisse. It's called Holt. Now, this company's from Chicago. Their headquarters is still there on Monroe Street in the AT&T building. And, and you think of it as the most rigorous framework to analyze the fundamental operating performance of a company. What Holt did was to recognize early on how much gap accounting distorts earnings per share as an accurate reflection of what's going on inside the business. And even when you're focusing on EBITDA and some of the other more expansive measures of economic performance, those measures still don't look at what's going on in the balance sheet, the assets being deployed to create that cash flow. That's really where the Holt model really was very robust and thorough in, in analyzing how to analyze and thus more confidently value a public company. That's a tool we started using in the early 90s. Then when I took over the company, I designed a research process around it and ultimately became the best Holt manager in the country. I was a power user. And when the company was sold to Credit Suisse in 02, the president of the company hired me to manage his money that he took from the sale. He sits on the board of our company today because what we've done at AngelSpan is created a Holt-like way to analyze private companies. Guys, I want to stop there because I just want to give our listeners the ability to catch up. At this point, you've gotten your money management experience. You've gotten a little bit of modeling experience, which is always important in finance. Here's a framework that we use to assess valuation and therefore risk. Mm-hmm. And now with AngelSpan, I'd love for you to continue this story. You're saying, okay, look, we have a lot of data in the public space. We can build models. What we don't have is a lot of data and a lot of track records in the p- private space. And there's an enormous opportunity to bring a more rigorous framework for private investors. If you could walk us through how you bridged from one to the other and then how it just AngelSpan off the ground doing this. Yeah, sure. As I got active in angel investing myself, I saw firsthand how the process of, of 
picking which startup to invest in and the access to information. I think that Austin, you and I are accustomed to in the public markets. It just wasn't there. And the process was so subjective and so based on hype and social signals, who else is in the deal? Hey, this will be fun. And my clients started wanting to invest alongside me in the mid and late 90s. And as their fiduciary, I would make introductions to startups, but I wouldn't recommend them because A, I'm not a professional in the venture world, and B, there just wasn't enough information for me to make a professional recommendation. I would accommodate introductions. And even that fell apart because entrepreneurs were so notoriously bad at communicating once they took your money. And so I both halted my own angel investing activities, stopped making introductions for my clients, but kept seeing this expansion of entrepreneurship outside of where I was located there at 3000 Sand Hill, up in the Sacramento area, which was always considered a second or third tier business town. But even it had some organic entrepreneurship springing up at angel groups and the like, and I was hearing it also across the country. The activity of entrepreneurship and the need to have a better way to fund entrepreneurship outside of Sand Hill Road became clear 25 years ago. And so I actually had started the company that's the predecessor of what we're doing now to build the toolkits so that folks like me that had a investment experience, portfolio management experience, and had a fiduciary role with other people's money, could have the tools necessary to take a more professional risk management and portfolio management approach to the capital deployment process. Can you talk to me about those tools? I'm sitting here going, sounds great, but man, it's pretty hard to get hands on the data I need to, to build some, some frameworks around and build some models in this space. That is the hard, a lot of VCs say the best biz startups to do is to do the hard stuff. And that's really is the singular issue that's holding back better and more investing in entrepreneurship is getting information from the companies themselves. The first thing we built with AngelSpan is the first Wall Street-like investor relations service for startups. So if you're a public company, but you're not very big, you're on the NASDAQ and you don't have a, you're not big enough to staff your own internal investor relations department, you can outsource it to uh, professional organizations. We've modeled angel spend services much like that, public market equivalent, where startups hire us, they outsource to us, making sure they communicate properly to the outside world. Monthly updates, quarterly reports, if you've taken investors' money. And the structure of that information is not just what we think is appropriate for the entrepreneur to report on, nor is it what the entrepreneur tells us they want to report on. There's actual science behind what is being reported. This is a real key part. It's called the Bell-Mason Diagnostic. And we can spend a lot of time on this podcast, but there's plenty of information on the web to, for, for your listeners to, to look up the Bell-Mason Diagnostic. But just understand the Lean Startup Canvas was lifted out of the Bell-Mason addressing the, the operational milestones around finding product market fit, which is one of the major risks of any startup lifecycle journey. But those specific milestones that, that comprise the Lean Startup Canvas was lifted out of the Bell-Mason. The Bell Mason Diagnostic is a far more expansive and robust way to track all the things a startup should do and when they should do it to build a business from ideation all the way through to cash flow positive self-sustaining business. Gordon Bell, the principal architect, is an investor in Angel Span. We have the inner workings of the Bell Mason, which is both structure the investor relations service, but informs what the entrepreneur should be reporting on because it's the things they should be working on. The first step is getting good information, getting more signal, less noise from the startups. How challenging was that to get off the ground? This was obviously self-reported. There was probably a ton of noise. I can imagine it was a, a pretty nightmare event to normalize this data to make it usable. Well, it's actually not. That's the thing. Is just like using Holt when I was a money manager, we don't recreate wheels here. Bill Mason's already figured this out. They actually creating a scoring system. A lot of the early operational milestones are qualitative. 
the outcomes don't show up in the financial reports that you can then do more quantifiable measurements on. Building a, a business early on, there's a lot of things you do that just shows up as a line on expense on the income statement, like filing for IP or receiving your patent. But you've just created a balance sheet asset, but it just showed up as a legal expense on the income statement. Much of the early process of building a startup is qualitative operational milestones that largely is balance sheet type assets. Got it. And the Bell Mason created a scoring system to assign a numerical value to those qualitative milestones so you could actually now quantify the progress of building the business. Even when that progress isn't quantifiable on a normalized income statement or balance sheet, they actually created a scoring system. Interesting. So it's safe to say that the earliest stage startups are probably not in your database if they don't really have any sort of data or are you able to create a proxy or? Yeah, how we get information if startups hire us to do their investor relations. And we not only do their monthly updates and quarterly reports, but we score them against the Bell Mason along the way, every month. Okay, we can only score our own clients because they have to be reporting through our service. That alone is a filtering process. The startups that sign up for AngelSpan, one phone call, they say, my gosh, this is great, thanks and sliced bread. Those are generally the more mature entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs, been there and done it. The 20-something first time newly incubated college grad, they not only don't know what they don't know, but they really don't know how difficult getting this communication thing is and how important it is in their entire journey. And those typically aren't our clients. So when you're thinking in terms of who uses AngelSpan and thus who's going to get scored and make its way into this database, it's going to be those more seasoned or more experienced entrepreneurs or that newly minted entrepreneur that made its way through a seed round. They got enough traction with that seed money. They're going out for an A round, but they've been beaten over the head by their investors. I've come on never hear from you. If you want any more money, we demo better hear from you. They are forced to use us because they finally learned those lessons of how important this communication process is. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Curious if you could expand on that. Where's the typical nudge come for a new AngelSpan user? Is it the startup when they're raising an additional round? And like you said, it helps close deals. Or does the pressure come from the investor side where they're like, hey, this service is really great. If you want money from us, you should go sign up. That last point is really where we're at. As we built out AngelSpend over the last almost seven years, we always knew it was going to be a channel partner um, go-to-market strategy. Selling to entrepreneurs directly wasn't going to be the, the business model. Referrals from accelerators, referral from angel groups, referrals from folks that touch a lot of entrepreneurs and or would benefit from and have been frustrated by the lack of information coming from the startups they cared about. What was shocking, and this is a tell we didn't expect, once we got some really good data points, use cases, testimonials, the startup used us, and the first monthly update, it went out, triggered an investment. We do trigger investments, and we get those use cases virtually every client that comes in the door. Problem is, if they're just coming to us for fundraising, they're really not understanding that this is a core corporate governance practice. You should be communicating because it's the right thing to do, not because it's going to trigger an investment. The evidence of that was as we went to a lot of uh, VCs and family offices, including the largest investor group in our company, the wealthy family in San Antonio that owns the San Antonio Spurs, uh, the Holt family. And their family office started getting a, uh, active in angel investing and a little bit of impact investing. And guess what? They never heard from the companies after they wrote them a check. Now, this is a multi-billionaire family and well-intended in their efforts at wanting to support entrepreneurship. And they never heard from those companies. They heard about us, we got introduced, they invested in us, and then they refer us to all their portfolio companies and not one of them signed up. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, wow. We had that happen from VCs say, 
go use AngelSpend if you want any more of our money. And they don't sign up. Interesting. It seems like such an obvious step, but is it just because they see it as a burden? This is a governance tool. We don't care about this. We're trying to change the world. There you go. They don't get another expectation placed on them. I'm already so busy. And that's just, again, an entrepreneur that is, and I call naive because they're not experienced. They don't understand how difficult this journey is, and they don't understand the relationship you have with investors. To a certain extent, there's a lot of the, what I call the pitch fest industrial complex that produces these enabled entrepreneurs that are coddled and given all these free services because aren't they the rock stars? And so they've been trained to think they're the, it's, they're the center of the world and investors are lucky to invest in them. And this sort of corporate governance practice is evidence of an adult. A lot of entrepreneurs don't have that frame of mind, nor are they trained or educated. To be back to JJ's question, what we found is that yes, investors need to say, if you want my money the first time, go use AngelSpan when I see the third monthly update, then let's sit down and talk. Because by the third, we can have a Bell Mason score on them. Now we're contributing to the due diligence. And at the same time, creating the muscle memory so that entrepreneurs start seeing the benefits of the feedback they get. Investors love it standardized reporting. It's not a marketing newsletter. It's not puff. It's all signal. It's all information and it's structured. It's objective and it's standardized. I want to switch to that angle then. As a venture capitalist, this sounds great. I'm getting standardized reporting that I don't have to have in my back office, which I frankly really don't have for the most part. I get some more transparency into my portfolio companies. That sounds awesome. Can you talk to us about the benefit for VCs slash GPs and what you guys are outputting. Austin, I know I'm preaching the choir on this. Most GPs out there that have jumped off into the venture world don't understand the things you just discussed. They oftentimes spun out of a Google or a Facebook or in Austin here, we have a lot of the rack space folks got a bunch of money. Now they're starting venture funds and they don't understand the back office things or they don't have the investment chops of risk management and portfolio management. They don't know what they're getting into. And most of them make investment decisions based on who else is in the deal, not on objective analysis. So what you guys are doing in trying to create a curriculum and a body of knowledge to help VCs be better investors, ours is the toolkit to support that behavior. Our toolkit is for that GP or potential upcoming GP that wants to be a better investor. They just don't want to throw together a fund and be part of some cool kid syndicate and co-invest with somebody else's decision-making process. They have to want to be a good investor. Not a lot of them today that I've encountered have that portfolio manager frame of mind. When I talk about how to manage non-systematic risk, they don't know what non-systematic risk is. Sure. Yeah. They don't know what systematic risk is. They don't understand the importance of managing decision process risk to have a repeatable discipline process. So your track record actually means something when you go to your next fund. When we simply built the tools for folks to be able to behave that way. Yeah, at the end of the day, transparency is beneficial. What you do with that is up to you, but having more information at your disposal should be, should be a value add. <laughs> One would think, I know you guys know this, there's not a standardized way to compute performance on a venture fund. They like the absence of transparency. It's like the hedge fund world. It's very mysterious. It's a black box, very mysterious. Don't look behind the curtain over there. It's a lot of Wizard of Oz stuff going on here. From your perspective, what's the biggest 
pain points that you run across? Is it investors and GPs who come to you and say, no, no, we are doing risk management. We diversify. We hold weekly calls with our startups. Where are you making the most inroads? What's actually changing in this industry? It's an industry that's investing in innovation. The industry itself seems to not be very innovative at some points. Well, that's right. Tom Nichols, Nicholas, who teaches entrepreneurship at Harvard's Business School, wrote, uh, you guys I probably have seen it as well, the consummate history book on the venture industry. It came out last July called VC, An American History. It's a wonderful book. And on page 311, he literally states that fact, that in the industry that purportedly funds innovation, there's been remarkably little innovation in how entrepreneurship is funded meaning the process of a venture fund, the structure of a conventional venture fund, looks just like the first one that came out in 1959. I will give credit, right or wrong, to 500 startups who started saying, wait a second, let's just go the opposite and diversify completely. That was a major step. Innovation is coming. People are trying. There's different approaches to it. We're simply bringing and, and using proven practices from the public markets to define the innovation we're bringing to the venture funding process. And it has to start with good information coming from the companies. Good is not triangulating social media feeds, how many times your website gets hit, all that sort of anecdotal stuff. The best parallel is today we invest in startups much like people invested in public companies back in the 19-teens and 20s before the 33 Act required standardized reporting and transparency. It's all hot tips. Who else is in the deal? That's literally what happened. It led to all the fraud and all, all the nonsense that happened and just compounded the Great Depression. That's why if you look at the 33 Act, it's about risk management. Transparency is a risk management step. And then the 40 Act came out and the language of the 40 Act said, into further risk management, this is how you run a properly diversified and investment pool. 40 Act funds, mutual funds, ETFs and the like directionally, there's a lot of conversation now growing about there needs to be 40 Act-like venture funds, properly diversified, where there's actual structure around it. This is the direction I was hoping it would take when we started AngelSpan seven years ago, and that's actually materializing now. Good work from Austin and what you guys are doing, because we need more ex people with experience from the public markets helping to shape the knowledge base and the directional innovation in the venture asset class. That makes sense. For anyone who doesn't understand the 33 versus 40 Act, those are the 1933-1940 Securities Acts that were developed after the 29 crash to help bring more transparency, bring more regulatory standards to help investors make better decisions so they're not investing in something that necessarily has way more risk than what appears to be yeah. the case. And that's the angel model right now is investors don't understand the risks they're undertaking. We built the tool so investors can manage risk better by first and foremost, expecting proper transparency before you write the check. That's the first and best step for any investor. Startups pay for our service and we're not expensive. We've eliminated all the legitimate reasons that entrepreneurs don't report. I don't have time. We do most of the reporting. We do most of the curation. I don't know what to write. We got the Bell Mason that defines what you should be working on and of course reporting on. I don't like writing. Again, we do mostly curation. Don't worry about it. The big sort of $64,000 question, if you will, is what's the oddest sample returns look like? Is there proof in the pudding here? There's other research that actually has been done by folks that have more data than we do on startups. We launched AngelSpan in January 14, at our first beta customer February, our first fee-paying customer in May. But again, you're talking about a small data sample. Now, we're getting good longitudinal data, and we've touched now over 250 startups in our work here over the last six plus years. We look to Gordon's studies when he back testing over thousands of companies. 
around calibrating the probability of a successful outcome. Second is a report that came out from a university in the UK working with a VC firm about the link between transparency and success. That's really the most robust data sample that says, look, when there's proper transparency, and proper means frequency and quality. It's not a gratuitous email that looks like a newsletter with a couple social media photographs. That's highly correlated with what becomes successful startups. Okay, if you want to improve your batting average, think of that optimal money ball statistic. Stop looking at the startups and listening to a pitch, but just look at data. The most valuable single point of data right now, Jason Calacana speaks about this. A lot of other people have anecdotally told you that this is true. They put some real data behind it. That if you simply started with evidence of proper transparency, your success of investing would go through the roof, your batting average, meaning your failures would collapse. That percentage of your portfolio that failed would collapse. How do you take that and then go build a portfolio? How do you figure out the right number of companies, the right check size, that sort of thing? And a little off topic, but I'd be curious to add to that your thoughts on AngelList rolling funds and other open-ended funds as well. 500 Startups has done some really good research, and AngelList put out some really good stuff recently as well. They've got some quant guys. It's directionally looking like an open-ended mutual fund. Now, again, I still want to go back and make sure that the portfolio is properly diversified, and they're staging investments over multiple rounds. They're not just leaving it open to attract new money just to add a single investment in a new company. Architecturally, I think that's a flawed model. Conceptually, it's like an open-ended mutual fund, but it still comes down to, are you diversifying properly? Are you managing non-systematic risk, which is through only through diversification? And then systematic risk is timing or thesis risk, and that's only done through multiple funding rounds, dollar cost averaging. Yep. Just to pause here again, two important terms. Non-systematic risk is specific company. Systematic risk is that risk that comes from just being invested in the market, the macro factors. And the goal for every good money manager is to eliminate that company-specific risks. You're not overexposed to a single event from a company, which is actually ironic in venture capital because most VCs go, yeah, I want to find that one unicorn. But I think what you're saying is that actually, no, you got to think about this kind of the opposite way. 500 Startups did some great work on this. They've got a robust data sample because they've invested in like 2,000 companies over seven or eight years. They have actual data to say, with this data and this return experience, and the benefit of hindsight, they did 10,000 Monte Carlo simulations using the actual data saying, what would have been an optimal portfolio strategy? With, and what they found is the optimally diversified and constructed seed stage portfolio was between 100 and 200 companies, all with the same dollar amounts, equal weighted index fund. That diversification curve starts plateauing around between 100 and 200 companies. Each incremental additional company doesn't add to diversification. But below that, you're suboptimal. It's very different than traditionally. Usually that number is like 18 to 20 stocks. Well, in the public markets, that's correct. But There's so much more idiosyncratic risk, I would imagine. And exactly. Liquidity risk. You've got all sorts of risks that are compounded in the private market. Life cycle. Startup life cycle risk. Now, a round companies that are more mature, optimal, according to their work, was between 60 and 120. And a B round is between 30 and 60. That makes sense. You need less diversification the more mature the company is. But certainly more than what is recognized numbers you just said in the public markets between 15 and 18 is a properly diversified public portfolio. That makes sense that a B round portfolio, more mature companies would have something twice that. You still have the liquidity risk. You still have operational risk. You still have systematic risk. So intuitively it makes sense. And yet people say, gosh, yeah, I'm going to 
build a portfolio of 25 companies, we're properly diversified in the venture world. I just laugh my tail off. Yeah. They actually don't know where that number comes from. And they're certainly not basing it on actual proper diversification. <laughs> and again, Austin, I know we're an echo chamber here, but you view it like I view it. You're an investment professional. You understand the analysis. You understand how to look at something. The people that are launching and running 90% of the venture funds out there don't have that experience. And they don't want those professional standards and behaviors to enter the venture asset class because now you're literally professionalizing it which you're raising expectations, you're raising the ability to hold them accountable. Is that hurdle too high? That's a great question. Let's just say it's felt like a quixotic quest <laughs> the last seven years. But I can tell you that the narrative around this, all the way down to the Kaya organization, which I know they're talking about this, they're bringing professionalism to it. There's even discussions about a certification process like a CFA for a, a venture capital general partner. Got it. And yeah, just so only, everyone knows, Kai is the uh, the alternative investments certification. Yeah, if you work for a big pension plan and you want to further your career, you got a CFA and you got an MBA, and but you want to continually further your career, you can go get a Kaya designation, which is Certified Alternative Investment Analyst (CAIA). So it shows you actually know how to manage other people's money in the alternative asset space, which is everything that's not publicly traded: real estate, oil and gas, private equity, venture capital. And, all real estate, all that stuff. Yeah. So that sort of, of professionalization, because the pension plans out there, the institutional money, the fiduciary driven money has got a real underfunding problem, meaning they're bankrupt largely. And nobody knows this better than the state of Illinois or Chicago, <laughs> but count, they all are. And they have a funding mandate and, and a return expectation that's not going to be met in the public securities. So there's tens of trillions of dollars that needs to go and find a better place to get a better return. Quick question before we continue, just so the listeners are all on the same page. Could you give a quick rundown on what the Bell Mason framework is, the sorts of things that are included in it, maybe the types of data points you collect in AngelSpan? Yeah, the four main pillars of any business is the team, the product, the market you're going after, and then operations. Each one of those four broad areas has three subtopics to dissect it into, into more granular topics. So under market, it's the market itself. What's the business plan? And then marketing and sales. Those are the three. Under team, it's internal leadership team, internal operating team, and external leadership team, i.e. board of directors and advisory board. Under product is can you build it? Can you deliver it? Can you protect it? IP. And then operations is finance, which is funding. And but also accounting and legal. Now, there are granular milestones associated with those 12 subtopics at the five natural life cycle stages of any company. Gordon Bell, Heidi Mason, and Coopers and Librand, who were the architects of this, defined five natural organic life cycle stages. The concept stage, that you're coming up with something. The seed stage, you're taking that early team and defining a, a conceptual MVP. The alpha stage, it used to be named the A round stage or product development stage. Is you take that seed round money and now you're going to build that MVP and start testing it, finding that product market fit. The B round, now called beta stage, which is the market development stage, is you've iterated on product market fit. You've got a repeatable sales process. You've got validation of at least your V1 feature set and value proposition, pricing, et cetera. And you're now taking it to market at scale. And then to leave that beta stage, to go into liquidity stage, the company is cash flow positive and growing like crazy. That's a really important point right there. Cash flow positive. 
you find your unit economics are profitable in the alpha stage, the product development stage, where your unit economics actually makes sense. The business isn't cash flow positive because you don't have enough revenue running through to, to offset your operating costs. But at least you found unit economics that are profitable. If you think in terms of the Ubers that went public, or WeWork that was trying to, they never left the alpha and were marginally in the beta stage because they hadn't found profitable unit economics yet that were scalable. Those stages aren't around funding levels. It's actually around tangible, objective, measurable operational milestones. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Something that a lot of people confuse is that, gosh, they're a, an X round, H round funding round. What does that make them? They're still raising money trying to figure out some unit economics that work. You bring up a very interesting dynamic, which is returns on paper versus actual wealth generation. Because the latter is favoring venture capitalists, right, who can collect their management fee, get rich on paper by increasing valuations, but the investors actually don't really see much. I think what you're proposing is let's invest in companies that will actually turn a profit, have an exit event, and actually realize some returns for our investors. You're absolutely correct. Another way to think of this is it's just like the inspection steps you go through when you're building a building. You go raise a bunch of money, you line up construction financing, you start pushing dirt around, you're spending money, you're converting cash, to operational milestones that are converting what was a piece of bare dirt into an incrementally higher value piece of dirt. You build out a certain portion of that building and then the building inspector comes in and has to sign off on those things that you actually built that portion properly. Then once they're signed off, then the next tranche of the construction financing is released and you go build the next phase. That would be the ideal way to deploy capital in the startup land. You don't spend all your money in a company early on, which is the way VCs typically invest. That mechanically is just wrong, both from a portfolio management, systematic risk, non-systematic risk management. But it's also not the right way to incentivize entrepreneurs. You don't want to throw a bunch of money at the Newmans of the world with the Theranos, the blood testing sure. stories, yeah. right? The cautionary tales are clear, and a way to manage that is to deploy capital incrementally based on milestone accomplishments. Once you can do that, you both are managing risk, but you're also mobilizing more capital because risk is being managed better. Sure. Which takes sucking back your FOMO. A lot. That's right. When you talk earlier, you asked a question earlier about what has been the hardest part of this and, and is, it gonna, is the venture industry going to be willing to become professionalized? One, it, ha it has to come from the money. It needs to flow into where real value creation does play, take place. Not financial engineering, not the hype machine you were just speaking of, but actual value creation, converting cash. The cost of capital now is virtually zero returns elsewhere, the opportunity cost of where money could go versus investing in a properly diversified entrepreneurial portfolio. The hurdle rate is so low that the opportunities here are huge. The money needs to go here. And when deployed properly, you can actually participate in the real value creation process. That's really well said. Changing gears quickly for a bit, you alluded earlier how there were different levers that people can pull on to drive value. And one of them, we actually had a conversation in a previous episode about this, is impact investing. I'd be curious uh, on what your personal perspective is, as well as maybe that from AngelSpan, in how you view companies that have a mission in addition to just purely generating profit. And that's a great question. And I think it's always important to level set on what is an impact deal. The best definition I've heard was by Jean Case, Steve Case's wife, who runs their foundation and, their, and leads their impact activity. And she was speaking at a Milken Institute event a number of years ago, about four years ago. You can see it on YouTube. She literally opens it up by saying, first, let's talk about what is an impact company. First and foremost, they're committed to transparency. 
B, they are committed to measurement. And C, they're committed to impact. Now, that's pretty generic. And a guy raises his hand in the audience. He says, I get the first two, but this committed impact, I'm a startup and it looks like a fairly conventional startup, but we chose to be in Baltimore because Baltimore needs the job creation. Are we an impact company? Her answer was perfect. She says, for the people of Baltimore, you are. And that's the important point, that impact is in the eye of the investor. And the tip of the sword for wealthy families is called place-based impact investing, creating economic vibrancy in these overlooked communities around the country. All the jobs creation innovation has taken place in four cities, roughly. All the venture activities taken place in four cities, and largely so much of the rest of the country struggled. Hell, even Kansas City, where the Kauffman Foundation is headquartered, their entrepreneurial ecosystem is floundering. So this notion of location can be your singular impact criteria. That's why we had the Opportunity Zone legislation come through a couple years ago. There's actually legislation introduced uh, by Amy Klobuchar, co-signed and sponsored by Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, of all people, that's trying to get the government to deploy early stage entrepreneurial venture capital through a fund of funds model in these underfunded communities around the country. The issue of impact is really, a, it's in the eye of the beholder. And that's not something for me to say that's impact and that's not because it always depends on who is willing to fund it. And you could probably find impact on almost any company. That's well said. And I think it's an interesting point. I think we could riff on this for many hours, <laughs> but to make it really practical, what are some small things? What are some things that GPs can do today to really help move this notion along of more transparency, better practices, professionalizing the industry? Let's presume they want to. Let's call them the alums of Going VC are, by definition, they're trying to do it better and more. And again, I got to give a shout out to you guys because why hasn't the NBCA done what you guys are doing now? Why didn't they do that 30, 40 years ago? And I think that's a real important point to bring up, both for you guys' credit, but also to understand why the venture industry is not a profession yet. The NBCA is a lobbying organization. It's not a professional standards organization. It has not created a body of knowledge of best practices or had conversations like this where they're truly trying to help VCs invest other people's money better. And they've been around since 73. Anybody can become one. You just got to be able to raise a couple bucks and pay a lawyer to form the legal document. And you're now a VC. And as I like to say, hairstylists have greater professional standards they have to be held to. They actually have to go get a sheepskin to be a professional hairstylist. They actually have to be trained. VCs don't have to. With that in mind, let's say the going VC alum that really wants to do it better, what should they do first? And again, this is a bit of talking at my own book, so I want to be very careful here. But this is a space I've been studying a long time, and we built AngelSpan to address what I do believe are the necessary first and next steps to create more professionalism and thus more alpha for the LPs and a more efficient funding model for the entrepreneurs themselves. First and foremost, it starts at transparency at the company level, but it also starts at transparency at the fund level. A lot of funds are pretty opaque in what their thesis is and what's their strategy and their discipline process. Getting your own back office house in order, it's not sexy, it's not fun, but it actually is what professionals do. You get your house in order first before you think you're even ready to go pitch and take somebody else's money. That's the first step. Understand what your thesis is. There's a lot of great work out there. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner. There's, a, there's the 500 startups. Angel List is doing a lot of good research. Do your homework on what's going to define your strategy. There's a lot of work out there. You can just say, this is how we're going to deploy the capital because these guys said it's the right way to do it. That would set you above virtually every other beast in that same LP. 
because they're all going to try and make it very mystical and based on how smart they are and their Rolodex and access to quality deal flow and their secret sauce thesis that makes them special personally. And they can't be accountable to any of that. When you're basing it on a disciplined, rigorous, transparent process, that makes you more accountable, but that's what makes you more professional. And then expect the same thing from the portfolio companies. And yes, you should never invest in a startup that hasn't shown a history of consistent, proper transparency, first and foremost. That alone can be a thesis, just based on that research that came out of the UK. And then take the 500 startups, proper diversification. We're going to build a portfolio of startups that are both transparent, that'll improve our batting average, and our ability to do proper follow-on funding so that we can manage systematic risk better. And we're going to diversify properly. What industries, we don't know because we can't predict the future, what's going to be hot. We're going to deploy capital properly. And the first thing is we're going to do it based on companies that are already showing evidence of transparency because this research shows that alone would improve our batting average. The irony is that to professionalize your thesis and your strategy as a VC, the bar is so bloody low right now. It's not hard to create a more professional venture fund strategy just by deploying other people's research. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not showing your own arrogance. You're not relying on social signals or the purported quality of access to deal flow. You can't pitch that and launch that fund in St. Louis because there is no deal flow in St. Louis. And you can't spend enough time on an airplane to perpetuate your Rolodex. You can't do that. But you can manage the fund I just described from St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not relying on an analog version of due diligence where you have to spend FaceTime. They look at every accelerator out there. Just send me all the companies that, that are good at reporting. That's all I want to know. Send them to me. Yeah, you're setting a good foundation. That makes a lot of sense. This has been tremendously valuable. I hope everyone who listens to this has taken a different perspective on the role of what a venture capitalist is. It's not necessarily just about finding the next unicorn. There's a lot more to being a great VC that sets a lot of these in the 2% apart. And sure, having the network is a great value add, but it's a value add. It's not a core competency. It's not a core competency because you're instantly going to lose that game. You're setting yourself up to fail. And the other thing I would add is that go study the word fiduciary and understand what it means. When you take somebody else's money, whether you're a GP of a fund, you're taking LP's money, or if you're an entrepreneur taking investor's money, you are now a fiduciary over somebody else's money understand what that responsibility is for yourself as a GP and place that expectation on your portfolio companies before you write the check. Well, that's that. We hope everyone enjoyed today's episode of the Going VC podcast. A big thanks again for Joel for his time. Uh, We hope everyone enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. As we mentioned in the intro, keep an eye out for new podcast episodes every other Monday.